Welcome to Lamb of God Podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to how Christ has impacted us in this episode. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Today is the feast day, second feast, uh, first Sunday after Epiphany, the feast day of baptism of our Lord. Sometimes it's hard to relate to this event. Is when Jesus is baptized, there's a unique calling that is placed on his life, a unique affirmation that comes from the Father. But at the same time, we're in Christ, and we're often receiving the benefits of what is happening with this event in the life of Christ. Years ago, some of you know my testimony about being filled with the Holy Spirit. I was in Dallas, Texas, doing a mission trip, a mission work with a ministry called the Agape Force. We were... uh, set off in teams of four in different parts of Texas to minister. We were told to um, trust the Lord uh, for our finances, for our meals, for getting even getting back. We lived, our base was in Lindale, just outside of Totter. We were dropped off in Dallas, and we were to minister for three days and just trust the Lord. Uh, it was called Ministry Outreach Weekend, but we called it Trust God or Die Weekend. And uh, we did that every, uh, they did that in the training school about every uh, six weeks. And I can remember being dropped off in our team in South Dallas, which at that time was really considered a high crime area. I don't know what it's like now, but then it was a very high crime area. And we stood on this, uh, the corner of the uh, street and we were praying and asking God to give us direction. So we prayed and the first guy I, we saw, we just... Uh, Went over and started uh, talking to him. You know, it was just an African-American man kind of down and out sitting on this park bench in the median of the, this four-lane highway. And so we're trying to share Christ with him and minister to him. And the thing that struck me was that how powerless I felt. I felt such heaviness and there was such resistance on his part that I began, as I ministered to him, I just felt like the words of my mouth were just going out of my mouth and just dropping to the ground. And I thought, Lord, this is Friday morning. We're supposed to be back Sunday night. This is going to be a long weekend, you know, because I don't feel power. Okay. I was saved. I had given my life to the Lord. I had walked with him. I was, I was part of this mission organization, so I had a desire to share the gospel, but there was still something lacking in my walk with the Lord. Okay. As we uh, travel and minister throughout the day, we end up on Commerce Street in the middle part of downtown Dallas, not far from where uh, the famous Kennedy shooting incident. And there was these huge skyscrapers in this big plaza where people would come out on their lunch hour and eat lunches and all these. There was just dozens and dozens of park benches in this big plaza and people would come down and eat. And so as we're walking through that plaza trying to determine who the Lord would want us to talk to and to minister to, uh, we are a very conspicuous bunch with a uh, um, sleeping bag over our shoulder and a Bible in our hand, okay? And our clothes, extra clothes are wrapped up inside the sleeping bag, okay? So you're just seeking the Lord, trusting Him for the direction. And this uh, little lady, maybe not even that tall, uh, African-American lady saw us walking by and said, what are you guys doing? What are you boys doing? So we're here from Lindell, Texas. We're sharing Christ. She says, very loud voice. Uh, have you ever been filled with the Holy Ghost? Okay. And just out of the blue. And I'm thinking, you know, you know, this is not too cool. 
We're in the middle of this plaza with all of these sophisticated people in suits, and I might have a crazy lady on my hands, you know. And, um, and so there's four of us. So one of the guys says, yes, I have been touched with the power of the Spirit. And another one said, uh, I have two. And another guy goes, no, I have it. Would you pray for me? And I'm thinking, that is not what we needed. We really needed to move on, you know. And so we, she uh, stands on this little park bench in, on this plaza in Karma Street, and we're kneeling around her, and she's praying for this team member to be filled with the Spirit in tongues very loudly. Okay. Well, we didn't know it, but this young man was actually in unrepentant sin. Okay. That he had not confessed to the Lord, and it was uh, issues that he needed to deal with, and the Lord was not blessing him. But I was kneeling next to him in this group of four on this plaza, and the Holy Spirit began to fall on me. Okay. And it was gently or quietly. It was not, it was not emotional. Um, uh, that's my first experience of the gift of tongues was at this uh, park bench. And began to feel not just, uh, it was uh, not an overwhelming emotional experience. It's just something I knew that God had done in my heart. And there was a reality with the person of the Holy Spirit that I had not known before. And there was a freedom in gifts that I had not experienced before. Okay. And in fact, I uh, was so quiet and so gentle that when we walked away, I felt like the Lord wanted me to talk to my teammates about what had happened. And they said, yeah, we could hear you actually speaking in tongues. Uh, So I'm thankful for this really bold lady I'll meet in eternity who was willing to speak out in this middle of this plaza, uh, asking us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. What's so unusual about this story is that that's not the end of it. Uh, that night, we spent the night in a Salvation Army home uh, shelter and ministered to the guys who were uh, homeless in that shelter. And you see, the day before when we had tried to minister to that man, and I felt like my words were dropping to the ground, he had gotten real angry with us. And in fact, in desperation, what I said was, if you walk, you know, this is a four-lane highway, and we're sitting in this meeting in the middle of this four-lane highway, and he says... Uh, I say to him out of desperation, if you walked across the street and a car hit you, do you know what your, your standing with the Lord would be? In other words, if you were killed by a car, do you know what your place in eternity would be? That was my desperate, last desperate attempt to break through. He just cusses me out and walks off. Okay, So I uh, prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit that morning. By lunch, God had answered my prayer. This little African-American lady prays for me, and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Nine o'clock that morning, 12 o'clock that day, the Lord answered that prayer. Spent the night in the Salvation Army home. Next day, we walk into the old uh, Continental Trailways bus station and walk into the room, and I look over, and I see this guy in bandages. So I thought, he looked familiar, so I started walking closer, and it was the guy that I had witnessed to the day before. And I said, what happened to you? And he said, after I talked to you, I was hit by a car. And uh, I said, then what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to New York. I can't stay here anymore. And I thought, okay, God must be in Dallas, but he's not in New York. That <laughs> theologically significant, I guess. Huh? He was running from God, literally. 
Okay? So even though I thought my words were dropping to the ground, they were having some impact. But God used that hunger and that desire for more of his Holy Spirit to have an impact in my life. And forever after that, I called myself a charismatic Pentecostal. Okay? My emphasis to you is that you, when you, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Romans 8 tells us that the mark of a Christian is that the Holy Spirit resides in you, marks you out, and makes you Christ's own, and you're his son. Okay? But there can be times in our lives and times in our walk with the Lord where we're not experiencing or realizing the fullness of that spirit that resides in us. We're not experiencing the fullness of his blessing, not just the spiritual gifts, but also power for ministry and also freedom from the Lord to enjoy the fruits of the spirit and be able to walk in joy when we feel dark or be able to be patient when we feel like um, uh, getting angry being gentle with a soul who's being rough with us, all these fruits of the Spirit coming forth from us because the Holy Spirit is residing in us and we're enjoying his constant conscious presence. So that's what we're asking the Lord. We want more. We want more, Lord. I want to understand more. I want to experience more. I want to know you more, Lord. So John the Baptist comes on the scene in Luke chapter 3 and he's preparing the way for the Lord. And the word of the Lord comes to him in verse 2. It says, During the high priesthood of Caiaphas and Annas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. When you're, If you're a Jew reading this text that Luke has written, the first thing that comes to your mind is a prophet has come forth in the tradition of the Old Testament. If the word has come forth, the spirit has come forth, and God is now speaking. Okay? Keep in mind that there had been an emptiness or a lack of the presence of the voice of the Lord since the book of Malachi. It had been a dryness and an emptiness. And here comes John the Baptist coming on the scene, and the Lord is working through him. The word of the Lord is speaking. And it's speaking in the midst of real people in a real place. That's what I like about Luke is he's so detailed. He tells you exactly who's happening, what's happening, where it's happening. It's a real event in a real space and time. In verse 1, he tells us this is the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. This is under Pontius Pilate. This is Herod, not the great, but the son. And the other sons are also mentioned. He's telling us exactly who the high priests were when John the Baptist started his ministry. So what's the purpose of that? It's to say that this is a real event that God spoke in a real place, in a real time, through real people. This is not a myth. This is not just a nice story we still tell at a campfire. Okay? It's a real event. God set forth a man to fulfill his, pro- his promises in Malachi and Isaiah that he would send forth a messenger to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming Messiah. Okay? So if you're taking notes, the first thing is God through his word works through real people in real time and specific places. Okay? When he comes, he comes preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This is highly unusual. This is something we take for granted, especially in the South. Many of us were raised Baptist, and to be baptized by immersion is, was, is their, one of their primary beliefs. And it is something that Jesus taught, that we identify with him and his death, burial, and resurrection. But when John is doing this, this is new in the Jewish tradition. The only people who were really baptized were Gentile converts into Judaism. It was very rarely used. And John's coming forth and say, come forth. Be baptized in this water that your sins will be forgiven. 
that you may identify and be ready for the Messiah when he comes. So the John the Baptist ministry was to come and set up Jesus' ministry and prepare the way of the Lord. And so that's exactly what uh, Luke wants us to see, that the Old Testament is being fulfilled. A voice of one calling in the desert. A voice, not a personality, not a celebrity, but a voice. This week, uh, there's a pastor I admired that he, um, I'd heard him speak uh, twice live and once, uh, once or twice on television. He was a very cross-centered, Christ-centered pastor, also very animated, very entertaining to watch him preach. And then I learned this week, you know, that he has been accused of having an affair. And then there was uh, video footage that was captured from a church service where he basically admits it from a couple of weeks ago. And it grieved me and uh, it disappointed me. This is someone I had uh, admired. And, um, and what it reminded me is once again in the American church scene, we've, in many ways we've become a, uh, a church of celebrity pastors. And when these celebrities fall, it causes great damage and pain and disappointment to the heart of people. But notice John the Baptist is not a celebrity. He's a voice crying in the wilderness. It's not about his personality. It's not about what clothes he wears, what car he drives, how big his church is. Okay, he didn't even, he's out in the wilderness, okay, dressed in camel's hair and locusts. I mean, eating, uh, dressed in camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey. This is a sign of desperation and a sign of exile. These are not padded pews. If he was put on CNN or Fox, they would all mock him and call him crazy. Can you imagine the Twitter feed that would be going on? People love to criticize other people on Twitter. Imagine what fun they would make of this man. But he didn't care because he's a voice crying in the wilderness to do what? To prepare the way for the Lord, to make straight paths for him. Every valley will be filled in. Every mountain and hill will be made low. Crooked roads will become straight and rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. This is a verse that's taken from Isaiah that's talking about the returning of the exiles from Babylon back to Israel, that the Lord was going to do a great work and prepare a way and by lowering the mountains and raising the valleys. In other words, the road was going to be straight and smooth back to a relationship with the Lord. And John the Baptist, is, Luke is telling us John the Baptist is an instrument that God is using to make the way of the Lord straight for the people to come to the heart of God as they encounter Jesus the Messiah because he's bringing salvation to all of mankind. What a ministry. What power. So we come to verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Well, that'll raise your church attendance. That'll keep them coming. We'll have to get a bigger tent next time, John, when you keep preaching like that. When a fire starts in the desert, you have all that dry, you know, weedy stuff. And it burns and it crackles and it moves quickly. And when it does, the lives, anything that's alive starts moving out. You know, had some kids... I was walking the dogs behind our house, and some kids had taken the muffler off their uh, uh, ATV. And they were driving down the trails through the woods, and it was making such a large noise. Uh, as we were standing there in the trail, I was holding the dogs back. Five deer come racing out. 
three large ones about this big and two new, uh, uh, I guess, uh, what would you call it? Fonds, yeah. Come racing out into the subdivision and two cross south shade crest almost hit a car. But it, the sound of that ATV with no muffler scared all the, uh, the uh, living beings there, including my dogs, and thankfully they were on leashes, and everything came running out. When a fire starts in the desert like that, everything comes running out. And he's saying, you brood of vipers, you're a bunch of snakes. And a fire is starting. Who warns you that you need to run from the wrath of God? God's bringing judgment, and your hearts are not right with him. Who warns you that you needed to run? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. This was the Jewish temptation, and we can fall into the same temptation. We, have the, we are descendants from Abraham. We have the law from Moses. We have circumcision that marks us out as a culture. We have the temple. We keep the Sabbath. We have these things so God would therefore not reject us because we're doing all the righteous right things. We're born under the right people, and we go to the right buildings. We do the right stuff. But there was no heart change. And I've seen it in Sacramento liturgical churches. It's true in every church, but I've seen it in Sacramento liturgical churches especially. I was born in that church. I was raised in that church. I did all the sacraments in that church. But what about my heart? Am I really, when I encounter the God at Christ at the Eucharist, is I am really repenting before the Lord? Am I really encountering Him, allowing Him to work in my heart? The Jews here... He's saying to them, where is the fruit of the things that you say you are? You say you're children of Abraham. You say you have the temple. You say you keep the law, but where's the fruit? For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. In other words, if you're depending on Abraham to be your salvation, let me tell you, God can raise up a different people. And the Lord is saying in this verse, God expects a heart change, and God wants a relationship with you, not dependent on somebody else's. Not dependent on someone you admire, not dependent on someone in your family, not dependent on some friend of yours that you think is spiritual. No, he wants a relationship with you, and he wants you to look to him, and he wants to transform your heart. So the first principle was God through his word works through real people in real time and real places. Verse 8, God expects a heart change. Verse 8, also God wants a relationship with you. Okay. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. There is a real second coming. There will be a judgment day. There will be a time when the Lord will bring everything, reckon everyone, and bring everyone to account. Okay. And Jesus will be that judge. So the issue is, verse 10, the crowd responds. What should we do then? They're getting the message. The Holy Spirit's working through John. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. What? That's not what I expect him to say. I expect him to say, oh, go do some sacrifices at the temple. Go do something religious. You know, he says, but you're unselfish. If your heart has changed, then you will be so selfish and you'll be willing to share with others who have need. 
Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what do we do if the wrath of God is coming and there's going to be a judgment day? Don't collect any more than you're required to do. They were extortionists. The way you made your money as a tax collector was the Romans said, get five uh, shekels from them, and you took ten and pocketed the five. Extorted money out of people who didn't have any. And what John the Baptist is saying, if your heart has really changed, you'll stop the sin of extortion and stop exploiting people. Don't collect any more than you're required to do. Verse 14, then some soldiers asked him, what do we do if there's a coming judgment and the wrath of God? Don't extort money as well. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The Roman soldiers were underpaid, and what they would do to pocket their money was exploit other people, bring up false accusations, and drain them out of their money through bribery. It's a corruption. There's an Anglican podcast someone linked me to on Friday. Who He, he is an Anglican, and he said, and he, you need to see this. And it was a discussion of corruption throughout the churches and the world, with bishops taking large amounts of money. In one church in India, the 20 out of 23 dioceses, over half the bishops are indicted for, ext- uh, for corruption. They were taking church property that were worth about $10 million, selling it for like $4 million, and then pocketing a million. Okay. So they were underselling the value of the church property. Then in the sales deal with the real estate agent, they were pocketing a uh, like a finder's fee or real estate agent fee. The moderator, what we would call a patriarch, was arrested a few weeks ago. There's pictures on the internet of him being handcuffed. They have the the Indian government has the stuff on him to show that he was doing this, and it was a conspiracy among many of the bishops to extort money out of the church. And they were, corruption was rampant in this denomination. Woe for the wrath of God that's coming. For one who would represent Christ at the table and then extort their own people for personal wealth. Oh, they can say, oh, I did the sacraments. (laughs) I was ordained in apostolic succession. John the Baptist would say, what are you doing with the money? How are you handling the money? How are you treating the flock? Are you being an example of Christ to them? The only reason the Indian government found this out is that people of the churches began to complain that they could see that finances were draining out of the church. And they kept complaining to the government, you need to investigate. It was the flock who saw it. John the Baptist would say, don't extort money. Don't accuse falsely. Be content with your pay. Bishops, be content with what the Lord is providing for you in this denomination. It was a a sad thing to read. But you can see that what John is doing, he's saying that repentance is more than just me getting right with God. It also involves social change. It also changes the way I do my business. It changes the way I treat people. It changes the way I act. If I'm truly repentant, my behavior changes. Okay? Repentance is not just feeling bad that you did something wrong or 
Though that's important, it's the sorrow and the heartbreak that comes in knowing you've hurt other people and hurt God, that's part of it. But it's the, the word in the Greek for repent is metanoia. It means to change your mind. And what you're doing is the Holy Spirit's con- convicting you, pointing out that your behavior is inconsistent with Christ. So you're changing your mind. You're aligning yourself with God. You're stopping that behavior. So you're having a change of mind. And by his grace, he's changing your heart, which leads to a change in your behavior. And this is what John the Baptist is saying. People, if you're coming to the River Jordan and I'm baptizing you for the forgiveness of sins, this is going to bring a change in your behavior and the way you do business, the way you treat people. You're going to line your thinking up with the Lord. It says, uh, verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might be the Christ. There must have been a powerful anointing on him because Christ, you know, means Messiah, which means in Hebrew, anointed one. Must have been a powerful anointing that brings such conviction to the point they thought that he might be the fulfillment of the messianic promise. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he comes in power. And when he comes, that fire comes and cleanses our hearts and transforms us into a new person. It's not two baptisms, one of Holy Spirit and one of fire. It's it's two words meaning the same idea. And it's, When the Holy Spirit comes, he comes in fire and he purges, he cleanses and he renews. He transforms our hearts and lines us up with God's will. This is what Christ will do. He will come and impart to us the power of the Holy Spirit. So we know that God works through his word. He's working with real people. God expects a heart change. God wants a relationship with you. God is working through the world, through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And also the Lord is working to bring not only individual conversion, individual heart change, but social change by a difference in the way that we behave. But notice this, verse 17, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This Messiah who comes will be like the man who is the wheat farmer. And he takes all his wheat and he gathers it on the threshing floor. And then he takes a threshing fork and he whips it up like this. And he throws it up in the air. And the chaff, which is not the good stuff and it's the light stuff, it will blow away and all the seeds fall to the ground. The Lord will come and separate those and winnow out those who really have a heart for him. But notice what, what um, Luke says. Verse 18, with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. This was good news. There's a judgment, but there's a Christ. There's a judgment, but there's a Holy Spirit. There's a judgment, but there's forgiveness available and repentance that can be wrought in your heart. This is good news that God has come in his mercy. This is good news that Messiah has come and he will fill us with his Holy Spirit and empower. This is good news. 
Verse 19, when John rebuked Herod, the tetrarch of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things that had been done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. Okay. Ministry will mean, one of the things that plagues our churches is that when we face and speak out against certain moral issues, certain churches will say, you can't do that. We don't get involved in politics. Okay. In the 80s, I was part of an Assembly of God church where I led our singles young adult group in the first pro-life march ever in Birmingham. And I was rebuked the following Sunday because we don't get involved in politics. And there's some churches that will not get involved in the pro-life fight because they feel like this is politics. But notice what John the Baptist does. He speaks into the culture the word of the Lord, and he expects real social change. He says, I don't care whether this is, you think this is politics or not. This is sin, and it must be stopped. And he spoke out against Herod and his illegal and immoral relationship with Herodias, who was his brother's wife. And he had divorced his wife, and she had divorced her, his brother, and they married. And John the Baptist spoke to that culture. Okay. So you can say, oh, you're not supposed to get involved in Roman politics. You're not supposed to get involved in Jewish politics. No, we speak out. The church is called to speak out to real social change. When the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. He was praying and heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This verse has caused some consternation from, for people over many centuries. Because John the Baptist is preaching a baptism or repentance for sin, yet Jesus is sinless. So why is he being baptized? Well, it's simple. It's actually simple. It's told to us in Matthew's gospel to fulfill our righteousness. And what was that righteousness? To identify with us as sinners. To say, I'm standing in your place. Your sin's going to come upon me. And I'm going to stand in your place and take that judgment. I'm going to identify with you. All your struggle, all your failure, let it come upon me. Okay. I want... The judgment that John the Baptist is talking about, if you look to be in faith, it'll all fall on me. And you'll stand righteous before the Lord because of what I've done for you. I'm taking your place. Oh, sinner, I'm taking your place. Let the judgment fall on me. Look to be in faith and receive my righteousness. So he does this work. He is baptized by John. We know from other texts, uh, John, Mark, Luke, Matthew, they all four gospel writers, they all mention this baptism. They all have uh, added things that they share and say. But it's so important. Why? Because Jesus is now identif fully identifying with us. He's become our Messiah. He's becoming our suffering servant. He's going to take our place. How do we know this? Because when the Lord says, you are my son whom I love, with you are well pleased, the, the Lord himself, the heavenly father, is quoting Psalm 2-7, and he is also quoting Isaiah. Uh, I had that noted. I think 40 verse 1. 
And he's quoting this verse and saying, Jesus is fulfilling the role of a Messiah. Yes, he's always for eternity been my son. But here he's taking this place. He's becoming the Messiah and walking with me. I'm going to be, he's going to be the suffering servant and he's going to walk and take, take upon himself everything that's necessary for us to be saved, to be right with God. Notice what's happened. Luke is particular. He says he was praying. He had already been baptized and come up out of the water, and Jesus was looking to heaven and praying. And as he's praying and spending time with his heavenly Father rejoicing, the heaven was opened. So in other words, he has direct and complete and total access to God, the Father. The Holy Spirit descends on him, comes in power to anoint him. It comes bodily like a dove, not as a dove, but like a dove. Is there some way, the way the Holy Spirit was coming upon him, there was a sense of visibility to it, there was a sense of gentleness and peace, but it isn't a dove, but it's like it's like a dove. It was enough awareness that the people around could say, hey, the Holy Spirit's upon this man. And then a voice from heaven of affirmation comes, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. You've taken this role upon yourself. You're going to bring salvation to mankind. I'm delighted in you. So there's three, uh, basically three purposes to Jesus' baptism. One, he identifies us with sinners. He receives divine affirmation of his calling. And he also walks in Holy Spirit empowerment. What is fascinating, he's probably about 30 years old, around 30 years old. And he does not start to walk out his ministry, until he's empowered with the Holy Spirit. Does that mean he didn't have the Holy Spirit before? No, obviously. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. John tells us that he had the Holy Spirit without limit. Yet before he begins his ministry, he's sure to be in a place where the Lord can anoint him in power and equip him for service. And in his humanity, he'll be reliant on the Holy Spirit to equip him to do the work of the ministry, to perform the words and works of God. This happens, verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So those of us who desire to be in ministry, doesn't mean you have to be ordained. All of us are called to ministry. are all called to be ministers of reconciliation. So that means we all need power. We all yearn for power, and we all want a touch of power. We all need to rely on the Holy Spirit to equip us to do the work of the ministry, to live the Christian life to live in a way that's consistent and, and uh, intimate with the Lord. This morning, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful because of your son, that because of what he's done for us on the cross, you became the baptizer of the Holy Spirit, and we can receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray, may us live lives each and every day, especially this week, Lord, each and every day, dependent on your spirit to empower us to live for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Lamb of God Podcast.